uh, my message. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, again, we are in need of your help because we are people who are seeking to understand you and your ways. And we know that apart from your Spirit's help, oftentimes, Lord, we miss the main point of what we need to be hearing and learning. And oftentimes, Lord, we can uh, assume that these things are for somebody else and uh, miss what the Spirit wants to apply to our own hearts. And Lord, I just pray that you would guide us as we look into this portion of your word to see where the Spirit is pointing us to Christ and to finding our hope, our encouragement, and our, um, our steadfastness to be found in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I admit to you and confess that I am a person who has a terrible sense of direction. I can get lost easily. I have for years. I found myself all turned around. Uh, thankfully, the Lord gave me a wife who has a very good sense of direction, and she reads maps very well. But even more so nowadays, I'm thankful, and I am still amazed, and I find myself, the older I get, and I'm getting pretty old, that it is amazing to think that they've invented this system called the geo uh, I mean, the GPS, the, the fact that they can, through this system of 24 satellites that are 10,000 feet, 10,000 miles above the earth, can use them into a triangular situation to figure out wherever you are on this earth and using that as a system to provide to people who are on the move to know where they are and where they need to be going. It is really amazing. It really is when you think about it. And so this GPS will provide, of course, the visual road um, display so that you can see the road in front of you and when you need to turn off or that kind of thing, that's helpful. It also can have a, a, a computer-generated voice, you know, talking to you in your car. Uh, I like the British accent myself. That seems to help uh, hearing people tell me what to do, to have at least in a British accent. When you're trying to go from point A to point B, these are very helpful things, but... It's not a perfect system, right? How many of you ever had a problem with your GPS taking you where you're like, oh, okay, so you know what I'm talking about. I've heard some people tell me these nightmarish stories where they have tried to come to Long Island, let's say, just following the GPS, didn't look at a map, don't know where in the world they're going, but just going to do, you know, plug in where the destination. And so the GPS took them where? Right through Manhattan, right in the middle of jam time. You know, here they are stuck forever. And so, not always the best route. Sometimes, I again say, it makes sense to see the big picture before you launch out and travel somewhere, right? And so, an old-fashioned, printed-on-paper map, I'm still one that likes to look at what does the whole picture look like so I have an understanding of where we're going, the general idea of where this place is located, because then you can make sense of the details if you've got the big picture in mind. Well, that's sort of the, the setting of getting our thoughts in the direction of what I'm trying to do this morning to get the big picture in mind so we can make sense of the details when it comes to a new book of the Bible that we're going to study here for the next several, several weeks and months, probably, uh, if the Lord tarries. And that's true of the book of Acts. So if you have your Bible, we're looking now at the book of Acts. And before we tackle the challenges of interpreting specific passages in this book, Again, I'm going to try to persuade you the, the value of understanding the, the larger layout, the overall layout of the book. 
And one way that we can, if we do understand the plan and the purpose and the theme of the book, we'll, get, we'll, we'll be able better to understand the details uh, and they'll make more sense that way. And when we do this, we find that there can be some helpful tips given to us by the human author who will give us clues and pointers in their opening, I call it a prologue, but it could be the introduction of the book that they've written for us. And that's true in the book of Acts. We've read earlier here this morning this introduction of the first account I composed, Theophilus, was all about Jesus began to do and teach. He's writing to this guy named Theophilus. We don't know much about him, but we do know that uh, he is someone who apparently is rather important or had some significant status. He's called most excellent Theophilus. I don't think that's just a polite way of talking to him. But we know that this book was directed at him, but really him and, a, and an audience of people like him. And so this is a valuable book, the book of Acts. It serves as a bridge book, right? We go from the four Gospels, and then we have Acts, and then we have a number of letters, or what we call epistles, and then we have Revelation. So it's like a bridge book. It bridges us from the events of Jesus' life and ministry, and it bridges us into the early church, and then the, the epistles are describing what's happened in that time as the early church grew and needed instruction and um, teaching. So I want us to examine this, open par this uh, opening paragraph, verses 1 to 5, and try to understand the, the purpose of the book from the author's point of view, from Luke's point of view. And thereby, as we do this, I'm hoping we're going to avoid three potentially serious, erroneous assumptions that people make when they read the book of Acts, and therefore they get into all sorts of, I think, erroneous interpretations, okay? Let's first of all look at wrong assumption number one. Acts, the book of Acts, stands alone as the account of what the leaders of the early church accomplished. Now this false assumption, this, this false way of uh, looking at the book is easy to draw that conclusion because why? Well, look at the name of the book, right? The Acts of the Apostles. How many of you have that in your Bible? The Acts of the Apostles, okay? Now, that's not inspired. Um, and interestingly enough, when you read that, it's easy to assume that what? Well, it's all about apostles. That's what the book's about. The apostles did this and this and this and this and this. Now, is there some truth to that? Absolutely. If you have your chart with you from the notes, if you look on the back of it, it's a little smudged, sorry. Um, it was quite small initially, so we've had to um, make it larger and, and uh, blow it up a little bit here. But anyway, you'll notice in the th one, two, third line from the bottom of the rows of information, there is Peter, right, on the left, you see that? And then there's another box that says Philip, Peter, and Paul. And then you'll notice there's Paul. So, are there apostles doing lots of things here? Yes. Can't deny that. But, is that all that's going on here is the question. Is it merely an account of all of these different acts by these apostles? And the answer here, I'm going to try to persuade you, is no, that's not all that's here. Now, the reason I draw that conclusion is because, again, Luke is the author, and we know that because of 
his writing style and the way in which he's included himself in the book here, which we'll talk about later, but he talks in the, in the plural, we did this, like me and Paul and Silas or me and Paul and other people who are traveling along. So he's including himself in these trips, and he isn't in there. And uh, he's giving us some directional cues at the beginning of the book Look what he says there at the beginning of the book. The first account, I composed Theophilus. What's that first account? That's the book of the gospel of Luke, right? If he's writing in Acts, he says the first account is the, is the gospel of Luke I wrote. Again, it was directed to Theophilus. And he says that account was about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, hear me carefully on this. Luke never intended for the gospel of Luke to be merely only about Jesus and his earthly ministry, and then the book of Acts, the second book, to be primarily or exclusively about the early church and her leaders. What Luke wrote in his gospel was highlighting, yes, the earthly ministry of Jesus. That is true. It is an account of his public ministry, his birth and his ministry. But the second book he wrote, Acts, highlights Jesus' ministry while he's where? In heaven. Because right after the first chapter 1, we're going to get to the ascension where Jesus now no longer is with his disciples. He, he's risen from the dead. He ascends to heaven. And that's where he is. But the action that he continues on to do, based on what it says there, what Jesus began to do and teach. It didn't stop when he was ascended into heaven. You see that? Luke is specifically trying to help the reader understand Jesus is still active in the, in the book of Acts. It's not just apostles. Everybody with me? I lost you. Okay, well, I'll keep trying. I'll say it again. Acts is not primarily an account of impressive superstar apostles who pull off these amazing endeavors because they're so talented and because they're so expert-like, uh, clever church leaders. And that's what you walk away saying, oh, look at what they've done. Oh, look at what they've done. That's not the point of Acts. The common denominator in the Gospel of Luke and the second book that Luke wrote, the, the book of Acts, the common denominator in both is Jesus. It is Jesus. And that's what Luke is trying to say in his opening paragraph there. You say, well, it's hard to see that sometimes. Well, Luke is trying his best to show us in the, in the book of Acts an important perspective about Christianity. He's reminding us that Christianity is not a religion like so many other religions out there. Luke is emphasizing the fact that when you think about these other religions, they primarily center themselves around key people, prophets that they claim, or different teachers that they have a sort of a claim as being some kind of spiritual insights from these teachers. And the, the thing is that when that particular leader, prophet, or teacher dies in whatever religion we're talking about, that's the end of that person's contribution. It's done. 
So whether it's Joseph Smith, whether it's Mary Baker Eddy, whatever else, the number of people she married there in, in Christian science, whether it's Buddha, whether it's Muhammad, whoever it is, when they died, that was it. No more. No more contributions from them. Christianity, on the other hand, Luke is trying to say here, is different. Christianity is all about Jesus, who lived a life here on earth. Yes, he is God who took on human flesh. He, was die he died, yes. He was raised to life, yes. He now ascends to heaven, yes. He's still active. He is still active in the world. That is a unique component. He lives on past his death. And the end of the Gospel of Luke includes the resurrection. The beginning of the book of Acts makes note of the resurrection. And there's what? Make sure you understand that Christianity is set apart from all other religions. Here's a good comment from John Stott. Uh, who recently passed away, what well, a great, great expositor of the word, pastor in, in London for many, many years. He wrote this, Other religions regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. Right? Once his lifetime's over, no more. Luke says, Jesus only began his. In other words, during his earthly life, he just began his ministry. He's continuing on after he has ascended to heaven. And so again, Jesus is active, I think Luke is trying to emphasize, and Jesus changed lives during his earthly ministry in the time period leading up to his death and during that 40-day period when he's risen from the dead, he's still here on earth, and the time of the ascension, Jesus still continues to change lives through the power of the gospel, through his people, even today. So let me just say, if we're trying to interpret this book of Acts, we are headed in the wrong direction. We need to get our GPS out and get our bearings and get our spiritual satellites to give us the right bearings here. Because what? If we separate the gospel of Luke from the book of Acts, we're, we're missing a key point here. Because in Acts, we see what? We see the trustworthiness of Jesus and that what he said is true. And the promise that Jesus made in the Gospels, he says, I will build my church despite the threat of martyrdom, despite the threat of persecution and death that may come to his people. He says, I'm still going to build my church. And he did fulfill that promise through his people in the book of Acts. That's what he's portraying here, showing that, yes, he is and did build his church despite the failings of his people, the fears that they had, the threats from opponents that they had to deal with, imprisonments, persecution. They had stormy seas and all sorts of uh, shipwrecks and mob violence and all kinds of things that happened. Still, Jesus is working. He builds his church. And one thing Luke is trying to impress upon the reader there, Theophilus, and those of us who also now have the opportunity to read it, is that there are many reasons to be absolutely confident of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
There are many reasons to be confident in the power of Jesus Christ to build his church through the faithful proclamation of the gospel. Because Jesus continues to work. He's still at work through his people. And Luke concludes his book. And let's take a moment. Let's look at the back of the book here, the end of the book, excuse me. How many chapters in Acts? I'm waiting. Sorry? 28. 28 chapters, book of Acts. Listen to this conclusion. You're looking for some dramatic, you know, and Paul was able to do this and this, and he finally went to Rome, and then he moved on. No, we don't hear anything like that. It ends with this. Verse 30, 28, 30. He stayed, Paul stayed two, two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Okay, what's next? It seems like an unusual ending, wouldn't you say? And here's my suggestion to you. I think purposely it ends with a strange way of talking about what? Openness? And being unhindered when it comes to the gospel being proclaimed is Luke's way of saying, I want you to read this book and understand that Jesus is at work so that you will continue to proclaim the gospel, not give up on the fact that Jesus is at work, and therefore what? That he's still at work, and so the book, in a sense, ends with a dot, dot, dot. I forgot to look up what that, what that means. What is that? What is a dot, dot, dot? I forget there's a name for it, I'm sure. Ellipsis? Okay. I think there's a sense of an implied dot, dot, dot. In other words, Jesus is still working, and that's why some people come up with an Acts 29. They say this is the movement of God through his spirit, in the people of God, that he's still working. He's still building his church. He still builds his church as those who continue to what? Stay faithful to the mission to proclaim the gospel and to make Christ known to people all over the world. And so here's my point here. I'm going to summarize my first point. The book is not merely about super impressive apostles accomplishing amazing events. It does have that in there. But the book is a reminder to do what? It's a reinforcement of Jesus' principle in John 15 in which he says to his disciples, I'm the branch, sorry, I'm the vine, we are the branches. And the branches have to abide in the vine. Why is that? Jesus goes on to say what? Apart from him, that is Jesus, those who are the branches, that is his followers, can do nothing. Does that mean you are unable to make breakfast in the morning unless you're abiding in the vine? No, you can do that. What's he talking about? What's the nothing referred to? I think the nothing is what? We have no ability to bring about regenerational change in people's lives, and we have no ability to bring about spiritual transformation in our lives or anybody else's life apart from Jesus. And remaining in him, communing with him, and watching him do his work through his people. So, that's my first point. I hope you didn't get lost, but that was trying to clarify Luke's intention there. It's not just about apostles, it's about Jesus working in his people. Point number two, another wrong assumption we need to be careful to avoid as we look at this book is that early Christianity lacks 
a reliable historical foundation and therefore cannot withstand the criticisms of skeptics and opponents. I'm going to repeat that. Early Christianity is a wrong assumption. Early Christianity lacks a reliable historical foundation and therefore cannot withstand the criticisms of skeptics and opponents. I think the opposite is true if you read this book. <laughs> Again, the book is composed by a man named Luke who was a physician, by the way. We know that from Colossians chapter 4, so he's fairly well educated. He is quite astute when it comes to observation and looking carefully at things, examining things carefully. And it becomes clear if you read and compare the opening comments in the Gospel of Luke and the opening comments in the book of Acts that number one, or letter A, Luke is compiling here a carefully researched book. He carefully investigates the account of Jesus Christ. Luke is compiling here and an abundance of evidence that he has gathered as he's gone out and tried to make sure that what he's putting together into this book will prove that the historical reliability of the Christian faith is really the main point he's trying to do. So, for example, in Luke chapter 1, verse 3, he writes about having investigated everything carefully. He's not throwing this together in some sort of half-hearted way. He has looked into all the different claims, all the different eyewitnesses, all the different accounts of what Jesus said and did. He has investigated carefully. So, no doubt, he's interviewing numerous eyewitnesses, which he also mentions there in verse 2 of chapter 1 in Luke's Gospel. He said, They were handed down to us by those who, from the beginning, were eyewitnesses. So I'm convinced Luke talked to what? Mary. That's how he got the account of the first two chapters there of the birth of Christ. I'm convinced he must have talked to the, most of the other disciples. And this guy named Cleopas, who in chapter 24 of Luke's gospel, accompanied and met Jesus, encountered Jesus on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. And so I'm sure that's why he's got that name included in the account of Luke's gospel, is because he talked to this guy named Cleopas. You can go talk to him yourself is the way he's saying that. You can ask him yourself. And also, of course, we know that Luke accompanied the Apostle Paul on two of his three missionary journeys. He was an eyewitness. He, he was on those trips. He saw what happened. Now, what's the point here? Paul, I mean, sorry, Luke writes this book, Acts, and the Gospel of Luke, at a time when Christians were facing strong opposition by Rome. To be a Christian was something that was strongly opposed. Why? Because Rome wanted everyone to bow and bend the knee to Caesar. Call him Lord. You don't give us this Jesus stuff. He is not the one who's to be confessed as Lord. It's Caesar. And so if you chose not to do that, you were seen to be a person who was, in many ways, uh, stirring up some sort of rebellion against the empire. And so Luke is going to take his analytical skills and he is going to make it his task to gather all these facts together about Jesus, about his ministry through the apostles, and he writes them down in an orderly fashion for this purpose, as a defense of the Christian faith. He is showing that the Christian faith is not something that is some sort of 
made-up religious legend. But Christianity is not an oral myth. That is, some, some spoken about, never written down story that, you know, I'm going to tell you this is what happened, this is what I heard from my grandfather, and he said it to his father, and I'm telling you. And so this kind of family legend gets passed down to people who are so easily duped, and they don't know the difference, so they just pass it down in verbal form over many generations. That's what many people think the Bible's all about. But Luke is trying to show that Christianity is not a fairy tale. It's not a fictional account. Theophilus and the other people, these early Christians, they were beginning to feel the pressure of the skeptical, intolerant world around them. And so many of these opponents were highly offended at this message of the cross, a resurrected Jesus. Oh, that is absolutely uh, 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 ridiculous. And Luke and Acts were written to create wholehearted confidence in Jesus Christ. Not a halfway, well, okay, I guess I'm sort of persuaded about Jesus. No, he's trying to create a full, confident faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus indeed really did take on human flesh, the flesh of a real baby. He really did walk on this earth. He really did minister to real people. He never once sinned and broke the laws of God. He really did suffer pain. He really did endure indescribable misery on a literal cross. Notice what he says here um, in this, um, uh, in, sorry, in Acts chapter 1. He talked about uh, the fact that there are, um, I'm sorry, I'm looking for the word sufferings. But um, yeah, verse 3. After these, he presented himself alive after his suffering. That's not made up legend. That's real physical pain. And Jesus was really buried in a tomb. And the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts present a solid, indestructible, historical foundation to Christianity. Luke is assuring his readers that Jesus, along with the Old Testament, is 100% reliable. You can bank on him. In order to what? In order to develop this unwavering confidence in the integrity of the Bible and ultimately in Jesus himself. I won't have time to develop all this, but here's one example of how he does that. Luke connects the dots. He's going to take a dot over here of Old Testament prophecy regarding the coming of the, the Spirit of God and the promise of the Spirit of God. And so he's going to take the book of Joel chapter 2 and Isaiah 32, a promise there, and Ezekiel 36 talking about the Spirit's work. And he's going to show that Jesus also confirms that promise in John 15 and also in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. I'll read it right here, Acts 1. Jesus commanded his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what? The Father had promised. That's the Old Testament prophecy. And then he's, and this is Jesus now, uh, which Jesus said, you heard of from me. So Jesus had made the promise that I was gonna, he's going to send the Spirit in verse 5. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Old Testament prophecies from God the Father speaking through the prophets. Jesus himself repeats the promise. There will come the, the giving of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? In, Luke, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, 
here is this amazing fulfillment of these two things. Now they all come together. What's Acts trying to do? What's Luke doing in Acts? He's showing that Jesus is absolutely reliable. The scriptures are reliable. These things do fit together. There's absolute no reason why you shouldn't be confident in the scriptures. Now, I just want to back up and just say this. I am aware that we live in a skeptical age. The world system around us, as it has for many years, but even more so today's world, is putting its pressure on Christians to silence us in our Christian witness. Right? More and more, there's a sense of trying to intimidate those who express their faith in the public square. And they, the, the world system is trying to undermine our confidence in the scriptures, our confidence in the gospel, our confidence in Jesus Christ himself. And I'm convinced that as we feel that pressure, it's all the more important that we remain in the word and go back and ask ourselves, what is our confidence? Our confidence is in Christ. Our confidence is in what the scriptures say about Christ. And that this is eyewitness accounts that is inerrant. It is given by the Holy Spirit. It is that, it is that totally unique, 100% reliable. I don't have a whole lot of time to expand on this, but I just want you to turn in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6, just for a second. I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to suggest that Luke was addressing people who were beginning to waver in their courage to stand for Christ with public and with personal gospel witness. And this was something happening in first century Christianity. And Paul sees it in Timothy, who was a man he trained up to do ministry. He was a timid fella. He had a little bit of a, you know, he easily got, uh, leaned toward being fearful and, uh, and a little uh, cautious maybe. But he says to Timothy, now this is Paul writing um, when he's under house arrest, and he says, listen, Timothy, don't be intimidated by people around you who strongly resent the Christian faith and who find fault in your views of Jesus as the only way to God. Listen to what he says in verse 20 of the sixth chapter of 1 Timothy. O Timothy, here he is talking, you can tell from a heart that's deeply concerned for him. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. That is the gospel. Avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called, quote unquote, knowledge. Like some sort of esoteric insider, you know, secrets of, of the mystery world or something. He says, don't. Don't get into all that stuff, which some people have professed, and thus they have gone astray from the faith. They have gotten caught up in other things other than Christ and the gospel. And he's saying, listen, don't you waver on these things. Hold to them. Don't cave to the pressure around you with the skeptical world trying to say Christianity is just a bunch of myths and made-up legends. Paul is sitting in this prison cell, and he's now waiting execution Moving forward in the story of, of, Luke, of Paul's account, he's fast forward now. At the end of his life, 
He's there uh, in, a, in a prison cell, not just in a, in, a, in a house arrest. He's in a prison cell. 2 Timothy chapter 4, nobody else is around him except one person. It's Luke. 2 Timothy 4.11, Luke alone is with me. And Luke, I think, captured this burden that the Apostle Paul had of sensing that his concern of the strong opposition against Christianity may result, and indeed was resulting, in maybe some Christians who were losing their boldness in witness. They were abandoning, perhaps, this idea of the passion to make sure the Great Commission to take the gospel to all the four corners of the world. He was afraid that that was going to not continue on past his generation. Because there were many who were saying, it's not worth the cost. I may end up having to lose everything. And so the early Christian leaders are very much aware of this concern. Is the Christian faith going to keep being proclaimed? And so letter B in your notes here, I say, bold gospel ministry is sustained by wholehearted confidence or faith or trust, whichever word you want to put there, in Jesus Christ. That's what keeps us going. And anytime we're wavering in our confidence and trust in Christ, is it any wonder that we're going to what? Be less likely to proclaim Christ and speak his name boldly and take risks for the gospel and carry forth in gospel sacrifice in order to make him known. A couple more comments here I want to make about Luke. Do you know that Luke is the only Gentile writer in the New Testament? See, the early church, when it first got launched, all the people gathering there on the day of Pentecost, primarily Jewish people. Jewish people. And so what Luke is showing here is what? Luke is showing that in, the, in this book of Acts, He's saying, listen, this Christianity is not only legitimate and it is also verifiably uh, um, certain and it is built on historical eyewitness accounts, but it also is not a religious movement that's made up of this small minority of Jews who are primarily from a particular geographical area, and that's all that this Christianity movement's about. He is trying to show in the, in the book of Acts that the Christian faith is a worldwide, global movement. And indeed it is, when you get to the book, into the book there. Gospel ministry is designed to, be, to bring about a what? A diversified church. Not a church of all people being exactly the same and all living in the same area. And that's all it is. It's an enclave of people in a particular, like Jerusalem. And that's where they're all to hang out and that's where it all happens. No. Jesus intends the gospel to be proclaimed and believed upon by every language group in every tribe of people in this world, in every nation around the world. And the book is structured in such a way, if you're aware of the book, and you can see this maybe in the chart, I don't know, the chart shows you uh, how he moves from an audience of being primarily concerned with Jerusalem and then Judea, which is the larger, like I would say, like the county area around uh, that city, and then Samaria is to the north, which is a, what, cross-cultural place where people did not have good relationships racially, it was a lot of animosity. And the gospel goes into that area and sees people converted. And then it goes beyond that into the all over the Roman Empire and continues on even past that. So that the, 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 the thought of, of Acts here is to show from Acts 1 verse 8, which we'll talk about in future weeks here, it's like concentric circles going outward, 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 outward with the gospel. 
So what is Luke concerned about? Letter C. He was concerned for gospel faithfulness and for finishing the task. Same concern we have today, isn't it? That the danger is that we get to the point where we say, well, I'm comfortable and I'm fine because I've come to Christ and so I, my life and my future are set. Well, I'm not so concerned about the people around me or the, the vast numbers, the millions of people who have no near neighbor to tell them. And so Luke is saying, listen, we've got to continue to see that the movement of the gospel needs to keep going out, no matter what the cost, no matter what the opposition is. And who will help us? It's Christ working in his people. All right, that's point number two. Point number three, and this is going to be very short compared to the other two, so relax, uh, don't be too nervous. Um, the wrong assumption that we might fall into if we're not careful here is that all the events and experiences of these apostles in the early church, as recorded in the book of Acts, are normative. Normative. What do I mean by the word normative? It means that they are to be copied exactly as they happened and that we are to sort of follow them as a pattern. Okay, so... Some people assume that these events and what happened in the book of Acts is the pattern that we are to follow. It's normative. So if that's the case, and I'm saying it's not, but that's the danger some people have as they read the book, let me ask a couple of questions. Should everything that the early church did be repeated by those of us who live now as followers of Christ? For example, should we draw lots to select our leaders? what they did in Acts 1. Are we to hold all our possessions in common? That's what the early church did at one point. Are we to speak in tongues upon the occasion when we receive the Holy Spirit? That's what some people believe, even today. Are we to expect heavenly visions to guide us in our ministry efforts to reach people who are culturally different from us? That's what happened with Peter in order to get him to go into a Gentile area. Are we to give out, and this is a strange one, because let me tell you, there's some crazy people out here in today's world who are doing this kind of thing. Are we to imitate the Apostle Paul in chapter 19, verses 11 and 12 of Acts 19? Are we to give out aprons and handkerchiefs which have miraculous powers of healing and we're to let it be touched by some spiritual person and then go and see these people get healed because they have this handkerchief or this some kind of apron. Let me tell you, people have taken that and they send you a little piece of cloth in the mail. Here, touch this thing and God will bring. There are many examples in the book that we need to be careful about interpreting it. And it can lead us, I think, in the wrong direction, spiritually speaking, with GPS that's not lined up with what the human author had in mind here. So here's my plea. Do not use this book as 100% transferable principles of ministry in our day. Are there some helpful principles? Absolutely, about ministry that we need to learn? Absolutely. But 100%, I would argue that the best way to interpret it and understand how it applies to us is to use the principles in Acts, read them about, read what happened, and then check them with the what I call the descriptive passages of Scripture, which are the epistles, which are the teaching sections saying, this is what you ought to be doing. This is how you ought to handle yourself. This is what ought to be going on. Understanding what happened in the historical account, 
by the interpretive and the teaching part of Scripture in the epistles. Now, is, is Acts true and is it, is it reliable and accurate? Yes, but we must use the didactic passages of Scripture. That is, where there's teaching, we need to understand what is really expected of every Christian, not just the Christians who experienced something that was uniquely going on here in redemptive history. Now, if you lost me on that point, I can explain it further to you individually. I'd be glad to do that. But that's how we evaluate whether or not we should follow certain practices or certain patterns is to understand the unique bridge function of this particular book. It was a one-time event in which some things will never be repeated. For example, another question, are we to wait around for the giving of the Holy Spirit? No, we're not going to do that. But that's what the early church did. That's what they were told to do. But we're not going to do that. Why? Because it's already been given. That's what I'm saying. Now, here's my point. I'm going to draw this, finally land this plane here, okay? All right. The book of Acts is meant to help us see that Jesus is at work in his disciples. And he's trying to work in such a way toward a destination he has in mind. What is that destination? Jesus is trying to establish gospel-proclaiming churches who will strive to start other gospel-proclaiming churches where there are none. And the specifics that we read about in the book of Acts should never be borrowed wholesale and reproduced and you boil down the book of Acts into 10 simple steps guaranteed to bring about ministry, a formula for ministry that will always be successful. I would, I would guard yourself against that. Rather, I would say we'd be reminded that the church is mobilized, the church is energized, the church is equipped with the Holy Spirit so that the gospel goes forth to a wide audience, ever-expanding number of people who are hearing the gospel, and all that happens due to the supernatural and sovereign power of God. It's not because the people who are carrying it are super people themselves. There's always a sense in which God is working in his people to do those things. And here's my final thought here about this idea of moving out. Social action will never be enough to bring about personal regeneration and societal transformation. That is, feeding the hungry, giving clothes to people who don't have enough clothes, or providing housing to people who are having a difficult time. Those are all good things, and we ought to support those kinds of endeavors. But doing that alone will not bring about regenerational heart change in people's lives. That's why gospel proclamation is essential. It is necessary. That's why the book of Acts is constantly recording messages of people who are declaring Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen, and coming again. And the biblical gospel is not just merely doing deeds of kindness. Acts shows us again and again that the gospel is to be proclaimed to individuals, to large groups of people. To people who are pagans, have no background at all to Christianity, and to people who have heard about Christianity at some point in their life, religious people, they all need to hear the gospel proclaimed to them. May God help us to see that it is only God, through his son Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, will help any of us achieve these things. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have reminded us today, hopefully you've reminded us in a way we've understood and are clear on, 
that Jesus is at work. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you, by your working, would create change. That you would change us. You would increase our burden for the lost. That you would increase our, our zeal and our passion for the gospel and for gospel ministry. And I pray, Lord, you increase our confidence in you and your ability to do things that seem seemingly are impossible and overwhelmingly difficult. And Lord, in those situations where many of us feel intimidated and we feel as though the worldly system around us is, is exerting tremendous pressure on us to, to, to be silenced and not to speak out the truth of your word and the gospel, Lord, give us, we pray, holy boldness. Give us a passion, we pray, to to, along with the apostles who were empowered by the Holy Spirit, help us, Lord, to be similar to them in that we are raised up to declare Christ and that we will not be quiet. We will not sit down. We will not stand off to the side. Lord, help us, we pray, to, with a heart of love, a heart of passion for Christ and a confidence of his working in us and through us, that we will be your agents for gospel ministry. And Lord, I pray also for any who are here today who have never seen a transformation of their own hearts. They've never undergone this amazing heart change and encounter with Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, by your spirit, you would bring about not only a conviction of sin, but you would bring them a wonderful sense of the power of Christ to change them from the inside out. And Lord, we pray that we might see you changing us and you changing people around us through your gospel as we once again remind ourselves of what you are doing, that you are active, you're alive, and you are our Savior. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.